Okay, today I'm going to talk about consciousness again. It's great. I love talking about this. I love thinking about this. There's so much that I could say, and I'm going to try and stick to the whole thing being less than 15 minutes. This is Future Robbie. I failed. And it's inspired in part by a little exchange I had on Twitter, which I will get to at the end. But I'm going to get to that at the end. So, consciousness. Consciousness is this phenomena that we experience things. Right? You can imagine a world. Now, some people would say that it's actually incoherent to imagine this world if you imagine it in enough detail. But just a little bit, you can imagine a world where everything is the same, people are walking around the same, but there's no inside. There's no consciousness. They're not having any experiences, but they're still kind of going around like little empty robots. They're technically called P zombies or philosophical zombies. These empty robots with no inside experience, no consciousness. We know that we don't live in that world because at least one person, i.e. you or me, depending on how you want to think about it, is, has consciousness, right? But it could be that everybody else doesn't and they're all just zombies. But it would be really weird because then you'd be hanging out with all of these zombies that were just somehow accidentally acting as if they had consciousness. So we kind of assume, we extrapolate from our own experience that like, ooh, I have experiences, I have an experience, I have experiences, period. And other people kind of relate to reality in a similar way to me and talk about their experience the way that I talk about my experience, which suggests to me that they also have experiences. Okay, that's consciousness. It's a very strange, confusing subject. I want to talk about this idea of of a spectrum of consciousness. This is different from the Ken Wilber book. Ken Wilber wrote a book called The Spectrum of Consciousness. I think it might be his first book. It's very early anyway. It's fantastic. You should read it. It, it kind of is in a family relationship with what I'm talking about now, but it's actually a different thing that he is talking about when he says the spectrum of consciousness about the development from the development of consciousness in, in, a, in an individual from when they're a child up. But there's also, you can think about the spectrum of consciousness like I have an experience. When I think about a rock... It doesn't have that same line of reasoning that I can make about other people where I say, they kind of act like me. They seem to be the same kind of thing as me. When I look in the mirror, I see something that looks the same as all these people around me. And I have consciousness. And they're talking as if they have consciousness. Therefore, I'm going to assume that they have consciousness. We look at a rock. We don't really, there's no, none of that is the same. I look in the mirror. I look at me. I look at a rock. We don't seem like the same kind of thing. Rocks don't talk. They don't act in any way. I mean, the way that they act the same as me is they're subject to gravity. <laughs> and, you know, they respond to, to kind of those physical things. But there's a lot of things that the rocks don't do that people do. And the things that pe- the rocks don't do that people do are the things that let me know that people probably are conscious, which, which kind of lets me know that rocks probably not so conscious. So immediately we have these two binaries. We have people who are conscious and we have rocks who are not conscious, as far as we can tell. And so we say, okay, well, the world just falls neatly into things which are conscious and things which are not conscious. And then we look at, let's say, a cat. And so if we're sticking with this binary model, there are conscious things and there are not conscious things, and we look at a cat, well, what do we say? Well, a cat does some things that are are like the things that I do, that I do because I'm conscious. It walks around, it eats, it, it, it communicates in some ways, it cries when it wants attention. 
you know, it seems to suffer and have pain. There definitely seems to be consciousness in that. There's also things that a cat doesn't do that people do and that I do, which which lets me know people have consciousness. Like cats don't talk about their experience as is the big example, right? They don't say, wow, I was just having this beautiful moment of remembering my childhood and seeing like this this experience that was really difficult in my childhood but seeing it in a new light and seeing the gift you know cats don't they don't talk like that and we kind of assume that they're not even having those experiences that's a general assumption now there are people that's kind of say my dog is the buddha right you know people kind of they they want to look at an animal and say well the animal doesn't experience a bunch of the suffering that humans seem to experience about meaning and identity different kinds of interpersonal conflicts like dogs have some kind of interpersonal conflicts but in general dogs seem to have a reduced set of things they suffer about compared to humans and they seem to be better at being just in the moment and enjoying their lives in the moment and so we look at a dog and we say that dog is enlightened that's actually uh a confusion we could look at a rock and say the same thing is the rock enlightened i mean we're getting there you can get into a mystical uh, kind of worldview where you say yes we're getting there but you know do we really want to emulate the dog the the rock excuse me like people kind of talk about that dog as being enlightened in the sense that like the dog is more enlightened than us i guess that's the difference if we look at the rock and say the rock is enlightened then we we are also enlightened in that same worldview but to look at a dog and say that dog is more enlightened than a person is is a confusion about enlightenment and it's a confusion about what's happening with the dog the dog is just simpler the dog is simpler than a person, and so it doesn't have the same capacity for pathology that a person does. It doesn't have as much to navigate. If you come into this lifetime as a dog, you've signed up for a relatively easy ride compared to a human. That's just a little thing about people that say the dogs are enlightened. They're not. They're great. Dogs are great. They're beautiful, amazing animals, a gift to humanity, and not enlightened. Or, you know, or everybody is. You can do it either way. Let's keep going. So a dog or a cat, they seem to have some of the indicators of consciousness that let us know that people are conscious, um, and then others they don't. So we can do one or two things with that. We can either say uh, they're, they're conscious, we can stick in this binary state and say they're conscious, or we can say, you know what, they are conscious, same as people, but less so, that there's a spectrum. And I'm going to make an argument for why that, that second way of thinking about it is a, is a more useful way of thinking about it. And the argument is one, we, we just keep going and we look for where do you draw the line. So if you're sticking with a binary explanation of consciousness, the binary understanding where things either are 100% conscious or 100% not conscious. And rocks are not conscious and animals are conscious. So then we go, okay, so what about an ant? You know, dogs and cats are quite like people. You know, in scientific terms, you would say they're mammals. Um, but even just if you don't aware of the distinction of mammals and you look at an ant and you look at a cat, there's just more things about the cat that's like a person than the ant. You know, they're closer in size. They move in similar ways. They eat similar things. You know, there's and then if you pay a lot of attention, you start to see, well, they... they um, give birth to their long, young life, they feed them with milk, you know, they have fur on their bodies, right? I don't think ants have fur on their bodies, but I'm not totally sure, maybe they do. Tiny little furry ants. So we look at ants, we say, well, are ants conscious? Well, okay, they, again, they're giving us less of the clues 
that would let us know. Doesn't it's not as clear that, for example, ants suffer. They definitely don't try and communicate uh, with humans the way that cats try and communicate with humans about about their needs, right? They don't, in fact, seem to be aware of us at all the way that cats are aware of us. Uh, maybe that's not a good argument for why they're not conscious. And we can go, what about plants? Are plants conscious? Maybe that's where you draw the line. You kind of draw a binary between the animals and the plants. But plants definitely seem to have some of the qualities of consciousness that we care about compared to rocks. Like plants move towards things that they need. They reproduce. Um, You know, there have been studies that suggest that there's some kinds of suffering in a plant actually, that you can measure certain electrical responses and there's things happening in plants which suggest some interiority. So you have plants and then you have rocks. So you're like, okay, well, plants are conscious. And then, so then we have this distinction of life. Okay. And so you say, well, anything that's alive is conscious. Let's say that anything that's alive is conscious. But if you're doing this binary, you can't say that plants are conscious in the same way as people. It really doesn't, there's no real evidence for that. So you're kind of taking it on faith at that point. Whereas it seems to me, and, and this is where like I don't have an argument beyond, it seems to me, but it seems to me much more convincing to say plants have a, a, an amount of consciousness which is it's some, somehow the same as the, the consciousness that humans have, but it's reduced. It's not as much. you know. And you could say, well, it's just different. And... Okay, but then you can do that if you want. And, oh, we don't want this hierarchy. We don't want to say the humans are better. And and I'm not saying they're better, but I am saying they're more conscious. I'm saying that barring maybe whales, maybe dolphins, maybe elephants, maybe chimps, uh, less so chimps, but some of those other animals, humans are, um, I'll just say humans are among the most conscious beings that we're aware of. And that there is a spectrum. And so, and the plants are, are way far down the spectrum compared to humans and other kind of animals. Now, and so the, the, an alternative to that would be, well, it's, they have a different kind of consciousness. It's more collective. It's slower. It's like they have these networks. They live hundreds of years. Trees, you know, they live hundreds of years. And that's interesting, but you still can't really, you can't get away from like, so what an amoeba do, just has a different kind of consciousness than a human and doesn't have also in some kind of intuitive sense less consciousness than a human. That seems disingenuous to me. If you think about an amoeba or say a virus, right? Viruses are even challenged the definition of whether something is alive or not. People are not sure what to say about whether a virus is alive because a virus is in some ways it's just this chemical pattern that has kind of figured out how to to hijack the the life producing mechanisms of other organisms to give it a kind of pseudo life but it but there's some way that it's not it doesn't have all of the machinery to be alive the way even like an amoeba does so you know is a virus conscious Eh, it starts to get you know what if you have and this is where we get into like the origin of life so we go back to the dawn of of time on the earth and the origin of life which we don't really understand but somewhere back there something happened and that led to this process called life that we have now and that something that happened is likely 
something like this, that certain chemical compounds that encoded particular sequences, that encoded patterns, started to reproduce, not through some magic, right? But just that they, that they were a certain shape, which just the chemistry of the whole thing meant that that shape made more copies of that same shape in some place. Let's say the primordial soup, right? The ocean. We don't actually know. Some people think it might be on clay banks of rivers, but we don't actually know where this happened. We know very little about this, but this is kind of the best guess about what happened back then is that these these shapes and chemicals, chemical shapes were just happened to be the right kind of shape that just by floating around, they collected up more chemicals that were then broke away into another copy of that same shape. And then this would happen and this would happen and then you get natural selection, right? Then you get some shapes are more effective at using the chemicals in their environment to make copies of themselves than others. Those shapes tend to dominate. And you get this whole process of natural selection, which leads to more and more complicated shapes, more and more sophisticated, better and better at extracting the energy and the chemical material that they need from their environment to make copies of themselves. Just because not out of any kind of moral sense, not out of any teleological sense, not because of any, you know, and this is, I disagree with, by the way, this picture, because I think that there's more going on, but we can just hang out with that picture and we still have enough argument for, for this argument. So you get these replicating shapes and eventually become single-celled organisms and then multicellular organisms, plants and algaes and things like that, um, and then eventually animals and crawling around. Again, like, well, where do you say the life comes in? Where do you say the consciousness comes in with these little self-replicating patterns of chemicals, right? So there's this, there's this unbroken spectrum from what we would think of as inert matter, dead, unconscious matter, to humans, and I, there's no sensible way. And and so this, the the Twitter exchange um, was about life so it's a little different than consciousness there's a podcast called the the there's a podcast called the crypto naturalist which is fantastic strange nature creepy stories podcast and um his twitter account uh the guy i think he's with jared anderson who makes it um his twitter account is fantastic and he posts these like little tweets i strongly recommend you follow the crypto naturalist he posts these tweets that are just these like little kind of bite-sized doses of Alan Watts-esque nature mysticism where he just will kind of say something about the natural world that makes you see it in a new way and blows your mind. Anyway, I he posted something about trees and basically he said, you are not more alive than a tree. And I took objections to this but by exactly the same line of reasoning that, that I would say that we're more conscious than a tree. He think it's fair to say we're more alive than a tree. Because otherwise you get into the exact same trouble of saying, where do you draw the line? You have to find a place to draw the line. If you insist that a tree is exactly the same alive as a human, then you're, you're, you're left with one of three possibilities. And the same exact argument goes for consciousness. If you insist that a tree is exactly as conscious as a human, then you have to say, all things are equally conscious. Or you find a place to draw the line between the things which are not conscious and the things which are conscious, which I, what I hope I'm, trying to, I'm demonstrating in this, this discussion is that it's kind of impossible to find a good place to draw that line. 
um, between for consciousness and for life, or you say it's a spectrum. And if it's a spectrum, then it seems reasonable to say that trees are less alive than humans. They're more like rocks than humans are like rocks. And they're less conscious than humans. They're more like rocks than humans are like rocks in, in both senses. And those things seem deeply correlated. And I don't have good definitions for any of this, right? Like this is so, it's very informal. So th- that is my argument. And then there's one last piece, which is, well, how does reality work? Like how does this consciousness thing work if there's this spectrum? Because, you know, a one popular model of consciousness is the, is the idea that consciousness arises as a result of the complexity of the human mind. Well, that doesn't work if you're going to give some consciousness to plants or even to single-celled organisms, you know, even to an ant. Like an ant has a nervous system, but it's so much simpler. So, okay, so consciousness is, comes from nervous systems. Well, what's a nervous system? It's just a configuration of matter, right? And before you have a nervous system, you have a proto-nervous system, which is a very simple um, system of like electrons moving through some chemical and, and you know, some physical structure inside of a simple organism uh there are single-celled organisms that that are just built so that they move in the direction of of if there's a gradient in the amount of glucose in in a solution so it's sugar more sugary over here than it is over there then they'll just just by their structure they'll slide over towards the the glucose and they'll consume it does that another system well, it's kind of a proto-nervous system. And, you know, again, there's, these, there's this spectrum. There's, there's gradations at every point. So that it's impossible to really draw a line and be clear about it. And yet um, this phenomena of consciousness, I think why it's difficult is because pheno- there's gradations in height and we just accept that. But this phenomena of consciousness seems um, monadic. It seems monolithic. It's like I just have one consciousness in my mind. So what does it mean to even have less of that? just to have a little bit of it. But I think that that's the, that's the mistake that we have to step past, is this kind of, this, and that's the, the kind of ego, egotistical or self-referential idea of consciousness, that like, well, my consciousness is, is, all consciousness is like my experience of consciousness. And, and we have to be able to say, well, no, we got to expand the definition. If you were a dog, you would be having a different experience. And so... But then how does this work? If it's not about nervous systems, it's not exclusively about nervous systems, how does this work? And this is where you get to panpsychism. And this is my own personal belief about the nature of reality is that it's panpsychist in nature. And what that means is that consciousness is is baked into the nature of reality. In some sense, it's it's everywhere. All things contain it. But also, you can have different structures which amplify it and condense it. And so the process of evolution, in part, has been a process of, of creating structures which amplify and condense the omnipresent consciousness that's baked into reality. Everything has an inside but most things have a relatively shallow inside. But if you create the right kinds of structures, you can deepen the inside of that structure. And that's what organisms are. That's what living things are. Um, and that's what conscious beings are. And human beings are the current exemplar of that process. They are the, the things which have had that depth carved as deeply as it has been carved yet in the universe that we're aware of. That's extraordinary and... It's a miracle. I'm going to end with a very short poem. 
by Ibn al-Arabi, who is a Sufi poet in the 12th century. Sufism, by the way, is a religion which seems to have um, cranked out an extraordinary number of amazing poets. I don't know what that's about, but we have a lot of great poets from Sufism. Anyway, here's the poem. It's very short. God sleeps in the rock, dreams in the plant, stirs in the animal, and wakes in man. If you want to support this podcast, this is a new part. At the end, I'm going to do this new thing. If you want to support this podcast, one thing you can do is to give it a review on iTunes. That would be very helpful. That helps the the robots know to share the podcast with other people. So, And then people hear it, which is what we want. So if you want to give this a review on iTunes, that's great. If you want to connect with me or you want to find other ways to support the podcast, you can go to 10,000thingscast.com. 10,000thingscast.com and you can find more stuff there. Thank you so much for listening and be well.